Hello, world. Hi, Emily. Hi, Elena. Welcome to Centered Subject. Thank you. This is a podcast where we talk mm-hmm. about really important things like technology and body. And I hope today, mm-hmm. you know, if we follow the train of the conversation like a very logical way, I hope that mm-hmm. we'll discuss Fleabag, mm-hmm. um, the American Smile. Mm-hmm. And being lost in the screen. Mm-hmm. Do you think emoji porn will come up at any point? Maybe. It's possible. <laughs> okay. It's possible. Yeah. And then, of course, Susan Buckmorse will make an appearance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Susan Buckmorse on the Fortis assembly line. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also on Walter Benjamin's perception or reflections on World War One. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully we'll get there. Um, hopefully. And what about World's Fairs? Oh yeah, they will. Space we'll travel to uh-huh. to 20th century and attend not one but two world fairs and two of the coolest cities in the world. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So stay, keep listening. I'm sorry, stay but glued Los to your earphone, <laughs> to both of your earphones. Maybe you're driving, or maybe you're. Hopefully, your seatbelt seatbelts are fastened. Well, to hopefully, that was a safety announcement. <laughs> Um, or maybe you're like drinking so it's be coffee. A bumpy ride. <laughs> yeah, bumpy ride. Hopefully, maybe you're drinking coffee in your car and listening to this podcast. Don't burn yourself. Don't burn yourself. But if you yeah. do, you should sue McDonald's for a lot of money. Yeah, and obviously. we hope your journey will be made shorter with our contribution. <laughs> oh my god! Want people to want car accident? <laughs> Hopefully, your journey no. will be cut off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. This is so mean. <laughs> Hopefully you'll get pulled over. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get pulled over. I hope there's no whiskey in your coffee. Um, have Don't a listen. Give them any ideas. <laughs> We're back and centered on centered subject in a different configuration today. Our usual host, Jenny, is vacationing. And so we have an esteemed guest. I have an esteemed mm. guest, actually, because Jenny is not here, so it's just a singular me. Um, my guest today is Emily Curtin. Hello. Curtin. Um, which is not Curtin. It's just a pun. And she's, <laughs> she's, joining, my real name. she's joining us today. Hello, Emily. Hi, Elena. It's great to be here. It's really nice to see you. Yeah. Emily and I go way back to Belarus, That's where right. we met a couple of years ago. And it's a really nice I think we see each other. Well, I think we just see each other either in Minsk or in Los Angeles. Those are our two meetup cities. Yeah, yeah, they are far away from each other and somewhat opposing. You gotta come to New York. Yeah, we need to break that rut. (laughs) 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 Kind of sounds like an exciting rut, but yeah, I'll come to New York. Emily joins me today to talk about various fascinating things. We both watched Fleabag recently. Mm I think you watched it before me. And I mean, it's not a competition. Yeah, it's not. Is it not a competition? <laughs> <laughs> the internet competition? Who wins? Who watches first? I saw it when it came out, like, mm. on British TV. Oh, yeah. All the Americans were, like, patiently waiting to watch it, like, through legal channels, I guess. I don't... <laughs> yeah. They follow the rules. They're yeah. not legal. The Protestant ethic is strong. But anyway, I uh, watched the Fleabag, and as you know, it was a charming television show, and 
charming heroine. Um, but I guess what struck me most about it is the breaking of the fourth wall. And obviously it's such a undefining kind of element of that show. And I was really struck by it, how theatrical it is. Yeah, I think certainly this technique is used and not even that rarely, but it is really dramatic in Fleabag because you get the feeling, which might be a false sense, that you, the audience, are the only people that she's really being honest with. Even though she's like sort of lying to herself, she's lying to like her friends or family, but like you do feel like you have this kind of direct line to her thinking, which I I think is just an illusion. But no, no, it's true. Yeah, it's real. And maybe we can identify with somehow having to play these different roles in our lives, and maybe like no one really has this direct line to our thinking except ourselves and maybe we have a fantasy of like having our own audience that would be able to sort of understand the kind of like annoying performances that we have to do all day long to like fill certain roles in people's lives. I I guess that could be like a conscious explanation although I felt more rather than a moment of kind of personal interaction it made me think of, I think, everyone, the kind of the masses that have watched it and that she winked at everyone, you know, and just the sheer mass of people. And mm-hmm. so rather than kind of a personal experience, for me, it became like a strange group. Okay, so you thought whatever intimacy would have happened because she's being honest with you and like winking at you is like diminished in your mind because you're one of just like millions of people yeah. watching the show. Yeah, and I think it's, it's sort of, it felt, you know, like a lonely thing because... Mm-hmm. I think it just connects to my general feeling of being spoken to by so many things, inanimate or television. Mm-hmm. You know, not television. We don't even watch it on television, so it's green. But series and algorithm and like automated messages and requests for your email address, you know, and websites. They're always addressed mm-hmm. to you. Yeah. You know, as a second person. So, so they're all pleading and looking at you. And so you might become... You know, it wants you to think that you're the only one. Yeah. But really, you're just... So you're kind of jaded because you're constantly being so. addressed as sort of inappropriate. The, the fourth like, wall is constantly yeah. being broken. So in a way, in in some way, it was really striking. But in some way, it was also... Yeah, it reminded me of this other experience of just being spoken to constantly. But they can't hear my answer anyway. So yeah, so futile. It's weird that I, discourse. I identified with Fleabag makes me feel like I'm secretly identifying as a copywriter for advertising. Oh, <laughs> very possible. I remember reading something about a powerful tool when I think this is more like maybe a bit of more of like a British thing than American products. But I feel like at some point, I remember hearing someone commenting on this and thinking this was really apt. But at some point, like, all British drinks started talking to you. Like, you pick up, they have all these, I feel like they have, like, oh, more the advertising. Of, oh, yeah, like, your water is, like, they're, like, welcome to your water. Or, like, welcome to your lemonade. Welcome made with to like your life. Yeah, and your it's kind of, like, water. you're just, like, I, I just want to drink something. I don't want to, like, think about. I don't want to have an engagement with inanimate being. I don't know, like, uh-huh. I don't want to know, like, what college Wait. the founder of this drink company went yeah. to. I just want to, like, have my drink. And I was going to excuse it with, like, object-oriented thought, you know, mm-hmm. because, like, well, finally recognizing the sentience of you know inanimate objects but then i realized that they're screaming at us (laughs) a they're screaming b we are we're just assigning them said sentience you know it's not as if we sit there patiently and wait for what the bubble will reveal within the beer but in in fact we're assigning them lines and they could be thinking something totally different probably the opposite it's just like away from me away from water i want to retain all my molecules in order speaking of performances imagine if this like you know your your special water or whatever it's broadcasting some message that someone else assigned to it right because it couldn't wait to sort of pick up on its own 
whatever its own consciousness murky or agency business, is. Murky what business. if the water is now doing an aside to oh some other product? <laughs> winking, winking what it's butter. really thinking, which is like, fuck these humans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that cake enough of water and butter. <laughs> They're breaking their own fourth wall. But yeah, I know what you mean about the advertisement. You know what I think is that a particularly egregious offender here in Los Angeles. What? The fucking, oh, you probably don't know because you don't walk around. The oat I milk ads. <laughs> Sorry, I just mean because you have I a car. No, because you're you homebound. You observed me walking <laughs> down the street. I did it. The listeners need to know that you do walk around and leave your house. I have okay. legs. Then you conceivably could have seen, well, this will be the real test. Have you seen these oat milk um, billboards yes, on yes. like, okay, and where yes. have you seen them? <laughs> I said them at the corner of Figaro and York. They're facing they're okay. facing my car. Uh, they're talking to your car. car. <laughs> <laughs> that they wanted my car to use oatmeal like, instead of gasoline. And it was almost oh convinced. God, but then I got in between. And I remember like a lot of complaints about this in the 80s. Now I don't know if anyone notices or cares. But like, well, that's probably just that's when I was a child. Um, there was a lot of complaints that it was somehow unfair to advertise products to children during like Saturday morning cartoons because sure. obviously they have a sort of undue influence on their parents and I'm thinking like is it fair for your oat milk to be is probably trying to reach you through your car yeah <laughs> so they're as they're facing oh, the car because they know that the, your car probably has a lot of influence with you you know no, what I mean no that oh. your car is probably like pull over by they're mistaken I detest my car <laughs> anyway those ads are annoying because they're like are you reading this ad they're like hello you know like or they're just like can you read yeah, I don't know they're like don't read this ad but if you do and it's the, I don't know they're just like too meta and annoying, but I also feel like the voice of the oat milk ad or the park bench that it's plastered on is a bit condescending, but it's also asking for your time to read the thing and to yeah. buy the well, product, it, it, but then it's like kind of... It delights in sort of trumping you, I think. Yeah, um, it's kind of dismissive when yeah. it should be like sort of entreating you. Yeah, maybe. But it, and then I think that's what draws us in too. You know, because some, when somebody sort of offends you a little bit... Yeah, you it's, know, you get, it's nagging you. I was going to compare oh, it yeah. to dating profiles. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, Keep right. talking. Yeah. Well, that's all I meant to say. Yeah, you know, so I think I forgot the term for it, but I guess, yes, it's yeah, negging. negging. Yeah. And yeah, so when you when you do that, and the, apparently the other's response is to, oh, but I don't think yeah. with me, though, I don't think it works. Yeah, because I was thinking before you said that, it reminded me of like a Tinder profile where the guy is like, only write me if you're a supermodel or they're like just looking, not serious about this or something. They were like already like sort of rejecting you and the format just in their profile. And I sort of feel like the oat milk thing is like reading ads is lame. But if you're still reading this and it's just like, why? Yeah, they're nagging. I guess. Mm. Yeah, I guess their target market would be, I don't know, sort of middle class women then mm, yeah maybe yeah i've been collecting my ads that i get oh yeah on instagram and uh, there's one today that was um i think it asked me if i was depressed <laughs> i just and yeah i get those sometimes but it's it's the order of the ads that's always really peculiar you know one will be are you depressed the next one would be like this new headband you know and the next one will be uh-huh. like a shoe and then the depression again so it's just <laughs> that that is not planned you know by humans that's just the algorithm. So yeah, I wonder what is uh, what is my imprint? You know, what is my profile? Well, of a, of a being. Yeah, I mean, I think that I probably, probably most that Americans are addicted to yeah. buying stuff and depressed. Yeah, and, though, and, depressed so. and that's why they buy things. This isn't even like a personal wink. Like <laughs> this is about as impersonal <laughs> two, as the flea bag two, wink. Two yeah. eyes. Yeah, two eyes of winking. 
Two eyes winked so hard that they closed and never opened again. <laughs> but Fleabag, Fleabag. I don't know. Do we want to talk about the show? I mean, to me, obviously, it's charming and she's an upper class gentlewoman, you know, with nice hair. Mm-hmm. It's fun. There's yeah. lots of sex. Thinking about sex. Oh, I guess that's relevant, actually, too, maybe in, in some way. Just to the fact that I guess there's this kind of ardent language in which the show is always written about in mm-hmm. articles. I feel like there's always there's always like a passionate beginning in the article. I think the, re- the recent one that you sent me with it started with like late a man and a woman. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. not going to have sex, or are they? You know. <laughs> so they, I feel like all of the these sort of I think all of the pieces that I saw written about it they kind of follow this similar kind of like very emotional and dramatic. Oh, like theatrical, mm-hmm. kind of theatrical setup. You know, they follow the convention of the show and the way, like the way they write about it. Mm-hmm. Well, you were we were talking about. Um, there was like a recent Guardian article about there not being sex in movies anymore. So the article was about there being less and less sex scenes in films, but that's different from series, from TV shows, right? That's true. So do that's you feel? True. I do feel I'm like complaining. And that made me think that too. they migrated. In fact, you know, even though they can't be on a big screen because that become that had become sort of like a very kind of defined ritual space. You know, where like parents go with children or people go on dates, and it mm-hmm. has to appeal to everyone. But you know, there's a kind of physical threshold, so it has to obey the. PG-13 rating. Okay. Um, and so everything migrated to the kind of laptop and personal viewing because you mm-hmm. you can, you know, there's no kind of control of the space. Mm-hmm. You, you just appeal to one pair of eyes, two pairs of eyes. Right. I mean, I think in terms of like ticket prices, they're saying like, yeah, people are going to spend like $14 to go to a movie. They want to go with a group and like, yes, yeah, some of those people yeah. might be under 13 or whatever. Or they hate sex or they're, you know, your parents or whatever. Yeah. Other um, parents. And they never had sex. Well, you don't want to see a movie with sex with your parents, obviously. I think whenever that happened, it was just so awful. (sighs) I've been recently watched Cold War with my mom, and there were some sex scenes. Awkward. (laughs) Yeah, and also the other thing about reading that article about sex, and then Mm -hmm. there are all these other articles. I'm like awash. Well, maybe you can explain to the listeners which articles. The other articles are about people not having sex. Okay, so there's like the Kate Julian piece in The Atlantic, I think, was the sort of. Yes, yes. Watershed, people aren't having sex right. kind of piece. So yeah. I think she, there was a lot of, I think, sort of like a little bit of like rumblings about this in popular culture. And I think she sort of collected all the different threads, the sort of yeah. different interpretations, like, I don't know, psychological, economic, yeah. technological. She kind of like pulled together all the different possible reasons. And one thing I liked about that piece is that she didn't just come up with like a soundbite. There was like this one reason mm-hmm. that it was definitely sort of a multi-causal. What do you think is like the truest reasons out of the ones that she mentioned? Which what, one do you believe I remember? rings the most? Definitely people are on, obviously on their phones more. And I yeah. think that then just in general, there's this kind of like digitization of life that kind of like means that people retreat reading more and this is also goes back to the price of the movie ticket and stuff people you know have access to entertainment at home and they can order food in and I think that people you know there's a lot of stuff of course in the Guardian which I know we both read uh, like the British pub is closing like you know I'm just saying like (laughs) that also somehow connected of course yeah because and and like you know of course there's a lot of stuff about about famous gay bars closing and stuff because people meet on dating apps and so I think that the article unless I'm just this is what I wish the article had said but I'm pretty sure that that she talks about just the fact that you know all the socializing and dating has moved online and that that's less likely that you actually are going to get out of your house and meet people so I mean I think that's I think like it's a also reason with the people you meet I think there's just um, that even within relationships there's less sex yeah yeah, and I mean that, but that also That's might be because people are sort of yeah, really focused yeah. on their phones and the um, the fact that millennials are supposed to be 
much more anxious than previous mm. generations. And Zoomers. Zoomers are not anxious. What, who are the Zoomers? Are they the below next millennials? Ones, yeah, they're below. They're like so new, I don't even know about them. <laughs> are they, really, just called, are they really called... The can I just make a little aside that I'm taking care yeah. of a little dog right now and... Oh my God. She likes to do this thing where she runs the studio apartment with a sort of like, you know, kind of wall in the middle. So she, this apartment is sort of, is like a shape of a ring or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, she just likes to zoom around. She likes to like run around the house in these crazy circles. And one time I just like, I got into Googling dog behavior since I've been living with this dog for the past month. And I looked up that and I found it's called the zoomies. And I just like, I like can't stop thinking about that word. Just like the dog getting the zoomies and just like running around the house like 20 times to get out her extra energy. So I I mean, the new generation will just be be very um, swift and circular. Well, they're probably just there. I don't know what they're doing to get that extra energy. That's they're doing extreme sports. Yeah, no, they're too young for that. That's more of a Mm, millennial thing. No, I mean, I think like when you're 18, I think you're a zoomer. Okay, that's plenty age. Okay, so I guess like my students are zoomers. I think so. Ask them about it. (laughs) I know the dog I'm taking care of. I don't know how old she is in dog years, but I think she would be. We could place her in the zoomer generation. Yeah, I don't know how much you had to do with um, with internet. (laughs) Dogs have generate cultural generations. Do you think? There probably are. I bet dogs get more anxious as their owners get more anxious, right? I don't know. Well, that's assuming that really they are mirroring, but. They could have, again, they probably the question are, of though, personality right? and sentience and who's more. Maybe it's the owners that are mimicking the dogs. Oh, my God. So, like, the Zoomers got the Zoomies from some, like, little dogs with lots of energy. Yeah, Zooming about. I wanted to kind of return to this idea about about the intimacy of emails and advertising copy and drinks and all these things talking to you and about how for you that kind of cheapens the way the flea bags sort of mm-hmm. what about podcasts how do they fit into that i mean do you not put on a well, podcast sometimes that, just to feel yeah. like people are having a conversation sure. in your living room so sure. that you're not alone just folding laundry by yourself yeah um i mean i mean, also wouldn't say that it put me off flea bag i think it was just i think the realization of kind of mass entertainment just happens i think to me and i think i'm and you know, I have some I'm interested in theater a bit, and or the, rather like how that the, kind of the live performance maybe way away. So, so I think it's just connected to those. But podcasts, um, yeah, I agree. I think they are able to become more personal. I think just due to the sheer specificity of how they enter consciousness, it's almost you don't mm-hmm. really see anything. So it's kind of a direct line to the yeah. mind, you know, like fed through your ear. You, you almost don't mm-hmm. notice how it enters. Plus, I think it's more about it's less, you know, entertainment and fleabag is sort of about creating a reality, I think, in which we become very lost and dissolved you know when we lose a mm-hmm. sense of self i think with podcasts the ones that i listen to mm-hmm. me personally, yeah but i i like you know it's sort of just like listening to discussions or things about ideas or you know books and so i think i do hold on to kind of my personhood and agency uh, and i and you know it's more of kind of an internal dialogue a discourse mm-hmm. that happens in podcast versus you know the kind of total disconnection and you know disassociation from the body which happens when you're engaged and something related to visual, actually. I think the oh. image, the moving image is so gripping mm-hmm. and eyes are so... It's hard to move around if you're like if you're focused visually on something. You know, it's just it's all consuming in this particular way. Uh, yeah, you kind of get the only thing you can do. So you think something could be 
if something's visually arresting that it's like an access for me it's paralyzing paralysis yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I think so yeah I think you have to be very conscious and resisting the lure I will often think about the, the amount of stuff that people watch today you know the the vast number of the serialized shows you know and how uh-huh. there's really central to kind of cultural fabric as something to discuss to read about yeah um, you know to live essentially you know people it's almost mm-hmm. like people are kind of living these proxy lives in such a large number yeah so yeah I do think it's a parallel and you know they could be doing something else they could be like living somehow right you know in a more kind of engaged way there's a kind of deadness to watching you know and this kind of hours and hours of mm-hmm. things you watch and you just as you recline or like a corpse but you know it is interesting that you point out the social aspect of this like shared cultural thing because it it is a weird way that you can be kind of checked out and not contributing anything to society mm, um, that's true oh, you know whatever or like, thinking doing something fun for yourself but recharging your batteries or, you're doing something for yourself and you belong in society but you're not doing something collective or producing any lasting cultural value by watching TV right it's more of a yeah. reproducing a sort of state of things but it is kind of necessary in this age I guess to participate in these kinds of entertainment mm-hmm. so that you do have something to connect with other people right about. it's, it's so common so it is social. It is kind of some social homework. I, I agree. Guess. I think yeah. I was just thinking more of being in the body and how that takes you outside. You know, and you no longer. It's almost like you're not not really aware of your like, corporeal form. You know, because you're just mm. we identify so much with you know Fleabag, whoever you know yeah. these characters on the screen who are like living these well edited lives, and you know you sort of inhabit them as you sort of lay about, not yeah. aware of yourself. So I think for me it was also ah. it's a social connection, but really. It's a lot of it, I think, it's just about existing, you know, being aware of existence, self-awareness, you know, uh-huh. how that completely goes with uh, this. Because you're kind of like living vicariously through these. Yes. And then these proxy bodies are actually Proxy bodies, right. And you do have memories because obviously you, you're yeah. living out whatever it is that mm-hmm. they're acting out, but it's not, again, it's not really lasting. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think very much about, I mean, I never think very deeply about any TV shows that I watch. And I mean, do people? Um, I mean, there's, I don't know about... TV show. I mean, that's stuff I feel like there's definitely like book and movie Fleabag, characters I that I feel like are sort of populate my mm-hmm. inner worlds. Do you have any from TV? I don't think. Well, yes, maybe from. I'm sure. Maybe something some. from film, a couple, but nothing like television wise. I think there's just something about immediately gripping fun that it produces that is not very memorable. It's also uh-huh. it's also like stretched out. You know, there's just like what. Okay, so they're not breaking through your fourth wall. They're not getting into your consciousness. No. <laughs> they just kind of kill me slowly if I do it. I haven't done it in a while, actually. Um, killed yourself slowly or watching me? Always. I <laughs> always am. We all are. Uh, that's um, what living is, really. You're just killing yourself slowly. <laughs> With some, you know, binge-washing in between. In between there. Basically, yeah. yeah. Which may or may not be, like, Satisfying. easing your way towards death. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. Um, smelling candles, expensive candles. So, but wait a minute. Let's. I was trying to ask you about why the intimacy of having people's voices, having a conversation in your room or in your headphones or wherever you're listening to a podcast is so much different for TV. And it seems to me that you find the TV somehow more... Image. It's image the driven. image. But with a podcast, you could be doing something with your else with your body. Is that what you mean? Oh, yes, I can. Plus, I think I'm mm-hmm. aware of my... You know, I'm aware of their thinking and then I'm aware of my thinking. You know, you sort of... It's, mm-hmm. a, more con- it's a conversation. I mean, I guess I, sim- I do, just don't oh, watch 
very so it much, sort of activates I your think brain it's also more. Just yeah. the material. If I'm watching something, it's likely to be not a discussion, but it's you know Sponge might Bob. be like a document. SpongeBob. Sorry, I'm outing you in all her favorites. Trying to think of what other shows they wouldn't know. SpongeBob. It's mostly Sponge. And then I just watch SpongeBob, and they become paralyzed. <laughs> Much like a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> I just um, absorb as much yeah, as Yeah, I won't sponge. tell them what other shows oh you watch. <laughs> There's so many so many fun things to say about a, a sponge. <laughs> I guess that's why it was made into a popular cartoon. I've actually never seen SpongeBob, so you can Me tell neither, everyone actually. about it. <laughs> yeah, it's your favorite But show. I know the image, you know, the yellow sponge and shorts. Well, yeah, I know the image because like I am large, a human on Earth in 2000 and whatever year this is. <laughs> yeah, it's been around for a while. Oh, you're like, you're like, you don't have to know what year it is now because it's been around for Get confused, SpongeBob. <laughs> Moving on. Anyway. Yes, podcasts and images. Against the image, I am. Mm-hmm. So I think this is some kind of radio propaganda that you're... <laughs> you're like, yeah, series are dumb. Anyway, <laughs> you can learn something from a podcast. <laughs> I don't know yeah, what, subliminal messaging. Like, yeah. I don't know what people will learn. Like, what could one learn from this podcast? Okay, yeah. if you've learned, if you've learned something, then please tell us. I would be so curious. In fact, I'm tempted to tell you something right now. Just to are you going to tell you us a secret? Know. What? <laughs> what? I just want to tell everyone that speaking of the fourth wall, that Yelena has been winking at me and whispering aside the whole show. <laughs> it's true. Been, we have our own little. <laughs> we have. Um, uh, we're reviving the ancient gesture of winking. <laughs> but there was an article just the other day about yeah, the, how oh, winking, yeah, the winking is maybe going again, out of yeah. style due to kind of an overall casualness of our era yeah. in which we no longer have to, you know, like resort to such strange decorum. There's no propriety, so there's no hmm. breaking of propriety, breaking of the fourth wall. Exactly. So um, we're just in our pajamas all the time out here, just yeah. like using the F word with parents and teachers. So basically, yeah, I mean, what is doing there? pajamas <laughs> F word to everyone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, never leave my house. <laughs> so very casual, but yeah. but yes, we do some. I don't know if I do. I wink. I sort of cringe. I think those like, those are two of my favorite emojis. The cringe emoji. I get yeah. a lot of mileage out of that. Yeah, yeah. I pref- I really like the one with the hand to her face that just expresses the way. Oh I yeah, feel you you use that a lot constantly. It's just I think I'm just constantly surprised by my haplessness throughout the day, and then although I also feel that they're very. Offensive emojis, but they're offensive. Them. Oh, okay. Yeah. How so? Oh, they're so basic. They're just so. Oh, I kind of love that. It makes me feel. I mean, like I do a, too, but it's just a bit. It's just a bit sad, a you know that we've. It just, they're so simple, cringe. Like imagine how it's written in cursive. It's so nice. Like cringe. remember all the curves <laughs> of the cringe, you know, and you, then the emoji, ugh, and like anyone can tell, and that way, you know, if someone can't read, you can write cringe, <laughs> <laughs> and they'll never know. Okay, I just want emoji. Ugh, it's and it's so medieval. Like we're, we're gonna stop being able to read. Saying we're just gonna pictographs all the way. Ugh, wow. Emoji funny daddy over here. Okay. I know you probably don't know this as someone who says lol a lot, a lot, but like, but you can't just write cringe in a text. You know what I mean? I mean, that's the thing is like the emoji allows you to express something that maybe would be too awkward or. Yes, but have you tried? To try the cringe? Let's just. All right. All right. We can experiment. We'll give it, give it a week and then see how you feel and how you'll see like your friends will probably feel closer to you and, and you'll just. 
things will be revealed. What was so, that co-star say? Like, but that's, I think that's what happens. Like if you're um, the liquid passion of tomorrow. If your phone technology it. isn't up and you can't show the pictures, it says like cringing face or something mm-hmm. like that, right? I guess so. Yeah. It's funny. The palm hand, the lady with a palm on her hand. My computer like is too out of date to read that, oh, so yeah, it shows up on iMessage as like that like female sign, oh, like you know, like the, the wow. circle and like the cross. Mine shows the little. And then there's like a six lines like a kind of like it looks really funny and then i'm and then i like look at it i'm like oh, what i'm like what's thing i know i was like did she oh, use the fun. squirrel i'm like yeah, the rastafarian cool. like why isn't this coming up on my computer and then i look wow. and it's like the hand pump. yeah i think the face palm thing is actually kind of new then i think it's kind of newer but it's been an old old one for me in like in real behavioral terms irl in irl <laughs> or earl as you that's might say been, that's been me for many years it's like that's a kind of that would be I like your well okay glue a hand to my so forehead, that's like, kind that of like if everyone has like hand. an emoji yeah. that expresses them exactly that's mine that's so funny and mine's definitely the cringe mine is also shrimp for some reason i don't know <laughs> shrimp <laughs> oh my god i wonder what my food one would be i'm not uh, sure gotta think about that think about it <laughs> the potato no that's mine too i'm know, sorry i'm yours. sure about potatoes. <laughs> okay, i have three three emojis i have coveted yeah i mean i think pretty soon in our bios it's just going to be like three emojis because like you said everyone's just you know we're, wow. we're I mean, moving away like from emoji words. porn like so people... plan your branding when people don't yeah. talk anymore and just communicate so emojis you should gotta signs. get shrimp face exactly you want to get that combo oh my God, in, in 20 years, you'll when people Google you, they'll just Google that, like, combo or whatever, yeah. Which will also be your phone number well, <laughs> when all words mark. are lost. Yeah. Wait, but I just had this idea. I imagine, yeah. what if there's porn with... I think... Well, I wonder <laughs> Keep <if> talking. <laughs> where people wear our big yellow emoji hats. Do you think that exists? Um, hopefully our listeners are going to go out. If it doesn't... Please. Yeah, and you can forward the royalties. <laughs> That's a centered subject. Instead of, instead of fucking, they will just be like... <laughs> <laughs> what cringing at each other that happens anyway <laughs> calisthenics I don't know <laughs> okay yeah keep talking because I actually don't understand I was just like joking but now I'm going to try to think about it I can't, I can't, I can't stop laughing for some reason they just oh just there's no me. bodies there's just the emojis is that what we're saying no <laughs> No, there's no, no, no. There's just like wearing the big, um, (laughs) big like yellow balls. (laughs) Okay, so it's like normal human porn actors (laughs) wearing emoji masks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess I've been thinking about the mask a lot in the digital filter. Oh, you could just do that with the with the filter. I bet that exists. Oh, I'm sure it must. I mean, first of all, it just means that you can use a lot of uglier actors if you don't have to see their faces. Well, that's so. Sad. Yeah. Everyone is beautiful. Yeah. I'm like, come on. I mean, everyone would be more beautiful with a yellow emoji face of their chosen one, like the face palm or the cringe. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah. That would um, be fun. I also like the kind, I got kind of into the like insincere looking smile. Do you know what I mean? The kind of flashy American plastic smile. Just in general? Um, just in using that. It's like, I don't know why. I would say that I'm not an insincere person, but I like how the that particular... Do you know which emoji I'm talking about? With the big... It's like a big white grin and like kind of oh. like triangle eyes. It looks a little fake. It looks a little bit like a used car's mask. Oh.
Speaking of smiles, maybe could you tell us about the American smile, the American plastic smile? Yeah. This is just a topic I'm pretty into. I mean, I think in relationship to Belarus, you mean? Or how, yeah, or like the sort of how I feel Russian-speaking world, what an American smile means. Sure. An American smile means in Belarus that you have really good white teeth and you smile fakely at any given moment for no reason, like with a very wide smile that like reaches the corners of your mouth should be mm-hmm. at the outer corners of your eyes or something. It should be like <laughs> that big and exposing maybe two rows of teeth. And so it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean it anything. It doesn't soul. mean anything. Uh-huh. No, it's simply a mask. It's a performance. Mm, okay. Yeah, I think. Yeah. That would be my assessment. That's the feeling that I... Mm. That I got um, that the American smile is sort of shorthand for everything that's kind of fake and insincere yeah, about Americans. That's true. I but I hadn't thought of the beauty, the physical aspect of it being perfect oh, and yeah. white. There's a perfection. Well, of uh-huh. course, perfection can only obscure the darkness within. Oh, interesting. That's the Belarusian <laughs> perspective. Well, I guess that yeah, that's interesting. I think that uh, right, whether beauty is like a deception or whether it's you know it's not just skin deep that it goes like yeah yeah beyond the skin into right. your. I don't know if Americans even care. They bones. just like the smile. Yeah, I think so. Oh, well, it is a shorthand for something, and I think I feel like it must be rooted in some you know cowboy times where everyone just kind of mm-hmm. tried to present a face maybe as as docile as possible somehow so that mm-hmm. because everyone was armed and I'm not sure <laughs> just making, making strange ideas about the streets that don't really know anything about the evolution of the American smile the American smile I just kind of wanted to know from a sort of from a yeah in, uh, I guess I was giving you a theory that <laughs> arrived from my from the Belarusian mob I guess maybe I've gotten, with my big fake American smile, um, yeah, I feel like maybe Belarusians just like to bring this topic up with me because, mm. you know, yeah. I'm American. And well, that's the first thing I noticed. They wanted me to back. know they think it's fake, I think. Yeah, yeah. sure. So I, that probably, I maybe imagine. you're not having those conversations. Probably and because I don't have, I think because I'm still, when I'm there, identified as a kind of Belarusian with well, of maybe course, a yeah. flair of Americanism. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking that this is one of the first signs for me, a kind of a heartwarming sign when I do like land somewhere east, you know, I fly out of LA, New York, or mm-hmm. London, and end up, you know, in Poland, for instance, and I walk in and, and I walk in with my Western face on, you know, stretching mm-hmm. my mouth and asking for something. And then they just kind of look at me strangely, like, why am I, you know, leering like an idiot? Uh-huh. You know, and they don't smile back because there's really no reason. Yeah, it's just yeah. Some you know transactional experience of exchanging money right, for right, right, right. They smile exactly, and and I always feel like a sense of kind of relief. You know, then I just like stop smiling. You know, and become oh uh, yeah. They're like they're kind of like don't even bother with us. It's lost. Yeah, and us, it reminds yeah. me, and it's a funny kind of muscular memory. You know, where I walk yeah. in and you know I get into this kind of this is the public behavior, but it's the yeah. different norm there. So in fact, you you stand out and become odd. Right, and of course I've had this experience many times, and I it takes me a while sometimes to acclimate. But then when I realize that at first it's uncomfortable to like make yourself not smile at people in an interaction that you would normally smile at or try to be friendly but I do feel like there is a little bit of this like relief when I don't have to do that when I realize like I'm like when it comes naturally to like not smile and this sounds mean because I do enjoy like chit-chatting with people in the U.S. and that's one of the things I miss when I'm in Belarus oh yeah but when I feel like I'm allowed to just like look like like have a resting bitch face and just like be semi-rude if someone's being rude to me in a a store in Belarus Mm -hmm. I do kind of like that yeah I like how real it is like it's nice 
nice to kind of like tear off the mask and let my just like ugly, cranky self show through. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's also something I enjoy sometimes, whereas I think here, whenever you um, walk into a store, you're automatically kind of placed into a position of power kind of by mm-hmm. by the staff because you're the one who's going to spend money and that's, you know, that's what they want me to do. So they, you know, yeah. allure me. So I feel like there's still, so the interests are very visible there, you know. Yeah. But whereas in Belarus, I think because maybe because there's still so many state stores or something, there's not, yeah. there's the remuneration for transaction is kind of more removed from the immediate interaction, you know? So it's sort Mm -hmm. of like, you know, they get paid monthly, you know, for a set. It's just... It's they're not involved in the. Goods. But they're not working on commission. Yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. working on commission. I'm not sure why it is, but people like there's not really a sense of subservience ever. I yeah. feel like people are, just feel very equal. I think and quite oh, bossy definitely. sometimes. I'm kind of talking about it abstractly, but I just always feel like you know that just happens. I go somewhere and I'm looking for something, and they're telling me exactly what I should get, and this is cheaper and but better, and you know, they just get kind of. Yeah. Because it's a really pragmatic state of mind that is not, the roles are different. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a totally different, I think you're right. I mean, the power dynamic is totally different because, of course, we have here, like, this customer-centric kind of ass-kissing culture mm-hmm. in retail. And it is very striking when you go to Minsk. And, of, of course, people call, we comment on this in, like, former socialists places that yeah. reputation for salespeople being cranky or bitchy or whatever by the standards of, like, that they should be kissing your ass. But, yeah, it is striking and funny in Minsk. But I also think that you can kind of have a more real conversation sometimes about what to buy or whatever, because there's not like a vested, they don't have any particular interest in like selling you something, right? Because it's not. Always, um, I always get advice what I should get that would be cheaper. Yeah. I think everyone is trying to save everyone's money, which is Mm -hmm. really charming. It seems odd, but it's. Yeah, that's how it has been so far. Yeah. I think that, yeah, it is kind of weirdly more honest. I mean, the, the Belarusian one where, like, yeah, people aren't going to be extra nice to you. They don't really care, like, yeah. how much money you spend. They might be more, they're, like, sort of dispassionate about their their advice. Yeah. yeah. I remember, like, one time I was in Minsk and I was buying this. I've been looking everywhere for this, like, espresso, like a stovetop espresso maker. Do you know what mm. I'm talking about? Like, those metal ones that you... Oh, and, yeah, yeah. The, the classic Italian one. Yeah. Uh-huh. I found one at Zoom at... It's just one of the state department stores, and I just kind of in my like New York like bodega mode or whatever. I was just like trying to make chit chat with the lady, probably trying to practice my Russian mm-hmm. as well, and I was probably just like lonely and trying to talk to somebody. <laughs> and so I was like, "Oh wow, I can't tell you how long I've been looking for this. I've looked in like five different stores. I, I, I don't know. I was just like hoping to sort of get some engagement out of her." And she just kind of like she was sort of like slowly wrapping it up in paper and like putting it in the bag, and she kind of just looked at me and she's like yeah well we had it here the whole time like you fucking moron <laughs> it was so funny because uh, you realize how often you when you have these reality. interactions and in, yeah. in stores in the u.s they're just they kind of about nothing but everybody's yeah. participating in the, in this well right? i think it, it probably <laughs> is necessary for us those humans to have oh but i guess yeah, that's still the one the interaction that you had in minsk was still a real interaction so you're still related but you weren't sort of approved by your, you know, whoever it is that you were dialoguing <laughs> with. You know, they were sort of not, I guess they didn't uphold the line of conversation. But a lot of yeah, I mean, she it. just didn't, there was like, what I was saying, it's true, was just kind of stupid yeah. and pointless. No, but no, because you, we have these interactions in the U.S. all the time, like, I, okay, so like, 
I, I usually live in New York and I've been, the Trader Joe's there are just like insane and they have like the lines, like, you know, there's like 50 people in the line. There's like special people whose job it is just to direct you into different lines. And every Trader Joe's I come to here, I just like walk right up to the register. There's no line. There's just like a bunch of cashiers like waiting for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's from California and, and I just where it feels most natural. Yeah. Well, you guys have a lot of them. I feel like, yeah, we're like starred people like a be- before a hurricane and like in New York where like everyone's like, there's like huge crazy lines like out the door or whatever in Trader Joe's. Yeah. And here it's like super relaxed. Everyone's like, you know what? Say there is an apocalypse. We'll just eat like fruits from our backyard or whatever. Like no one's worried. Um, but I can't help but tell every Trader Joe's, even though this is a totally boring piece of information, I can't help but tell every Trader Joe's cashier that I've encountered here that there's a lot of lines in New York. And I don't know why I compulsively wow. like bring it up. <laughs> I am like an old lady, but I do. But the point is, is that like, I will just, I guess, say anything just to kind of like engage with the cashier mm. if I'm in the right mood or whatever. Oh. And so that's kind of what I was trying to do in mints, but it didn't really fly. But I will say here, whenever I bring that up, the cashier <laughs> always has something to say about it. They're like, I know they tried to do that. They here, have blah, to blah, say blah. something. What are they going <laughs> to be silent at you? It's not Belarus. You know, like, okay, oh my God, you think lady. I'm forcing them to engage? You're just like well, making their jobs that much harder. I know. I'm demanding the emotional. It's not enough to know. save money shopping at Trader Joe's. I need yeah. to yeah, also, also need a little squeeze a little. little. To your day. Yeah. <laughs> I have a quote. Yeah. I feel like that relates to advertising conversation earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is Henry Ford on mass production. The production of the Model T required 7,882 distinct work operations, but, Ford noted in his 1923 autobiography, only 12% of these tasks, only 949 operations, required, quote-unquote, strong, able-bodied, and practically physically perfect men. Of the remainder, and this is clearly what he sees as the major achievement of his method of production, quote, begins, we found that 670 could be filled by legless men, 2,637 by one-legged men, two by armless men, 715 by one-armed men, and 10 by blind men. Uh, also Walter Benjamin on World War One, complimentary quote. Okay. A generation that had gone to school on a horse-drawn streetcar now stood under the open sky in the countryside in which nothing remained unchanged but the clouds. And beneath these clouds, a field of force of destructive torrents and explosions with the tiny, fragile human body. This immense wooing of the cosmos was enacted for the first time in a planetary scale, that is, in the spirit of technology. Because the lust for profit of the ruling class sought satisfaction through it, technology betrayed men and turned the bridal bed into a bloodbath. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to give us a little commentary on these quotes? Oh, I'm just, it's still sinking in, but I think... <laughs> start with the last quote because it's imprinted in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about the war and its effect on the tiny fragile body and then jumping to technology, I think... Mm-hmm. And I understand that he refers, obviously, to military technology, but also it's hard to divorce the word technology now from kind of high-tech ideas, you know? Mm, yeah. And digital and kind of the digital virtual universe. So right. those two just connected for me, you know, like that, that uh-huh. almost like this powerful cosmic force of technology and onto mm-hmm. fragile, fragile. <laughs> 
fragile body. And that, of course, the itemization of people and parts mm -hmm. um, is so eerie. Well, the relationship between <laughs> human and, and machine and car. But mm -hmm. yeah, and the way that it references the efficiency also references the kind of the efficiency of his technology essentially depended on the technology of the war machine that these bodies have gone through, you know, oh, yeah. themselves becoming, mm. you know, they're almost in some way robotic, you know, the, well, the, whenever they had this kind of extension of the body. Yeah. But yeah, it's, these men have been rendered such well. limbless because of the machine of the war. I mean, they're like cattle. What is it losing they're, now? They're being, like, there's an appropriation taken from, like, every different, the functionality of different body parts yeah. separately from being a human being, right? Like, they're right. each being used. It's like a tool. Values being extracted in, in the war machine, right? And, yeah. and, and then afterwards in the factory. Exactly. But I'm curious, what is now, what is happening now if we draw that, you know, like, we draw that parallel of technology yeah. kind of truncating us? What are the things we're losing? Because I do think we're losing bodily things. You mean because they're atrophying we're not using them or I guess so yeah they're kind of atrophying atrophying. our genitals <laughs> right oh, sorry not to bring up the early <laughs> oh, right. oh I'm not using <laughs> eventually all uh, returns to the genitals I don't know I mean all my body parts they don't seem dispensable to me so I'm not you know I was thinking like uh, like a sense of ourselves physical i guess yeah but it's also interesting because like even though the description of like one arm men or, or like was like some one-legged i mean it sounds dehumanizing in the sense that people are being reduced to these body parts but it could also be seen as inclusive that there are all these jobs True. for disabled people and i was like I oh, feel yeah. like that's kind of like what we're being sold with like a sort of like neoliberal mm -hmm. capitalism with this like yeah. identity politics space is like, yeah. well, <laughs> we're just auctioning off for parts like every single time you're on the internet, we're collecting data on you or like anytime you leave the house or use anything or do anything, we're collecting data on you, which we will just lord above you and one day like use to destroy you. But in the meantime, like it's National Disabled Person's Day or whatever, like we mm -hmm. set up I know, it was 10,000 jobs for you token, or whatever, yeah. you know. So it's That's like, it's weird on the one hand that it could be sound so like people are just reducible to like mm -hmm. whatever. But on the other, you're Operators, like, we're yeah. so desperate for like jobs and inclusivity because those are really important things yeah. that you're also like, oh, but all these men after the war or whatever, mm. like, I don't know if that is meant to be like, literally they have so many disabled men that they're, they're planning it like this. Oh, this I think like they so did. Yeah. I think it was. Well, it's literal, painful. like, oh, well. I thought it was sort of, like, hypothetical, these spots could I be I think he was also highlighting these. the efficiency, maybe, of his operations, in a way. Like yeah. That you, that you don't require much skill, you know, because it's, yeah. about, it's connected to the war, but it's also, you know, how basic... You know, he, because he's then also saving money on not training, I think, and all the sort of things. Okay, people become like more disposable, they don't have yeah. a specific skill. So yeah. maybe that's all for that. Wow. Oh, and I should mention that. Yeah, this why don't you tell us what you're looking at? Um, from a really wonderful book that Emily and I both really like. It's called Dream World and Catastrophe um, The Passing of Mass Utopia in East and West. And this is written by. Uh, Susan Buck Morris. Who Emily had the great <laughs> luck of studying under. For, I guess you took a couple of courses, you said? Yeah, I did, yeah. How, how was that experience? Well, she's a really amazing person and thinker. Yeah. She's, um, so she was a scholar, right? So she's a kind yeah. of historian, would you say? And yeah, she's a, no, she's a political scientist. Like, yeah, okay, a political sort of political scientist. philosopher, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And then 
I think she came of age and kind of started her career just at the end of 80s or something like that, like mid-1980s, right? And then, um, I think she's was born in sometime in maybe like the mid-40s. Oh, I I'm see. Thinking. Yeah. Oh, okay. oh, so yeah. she was already like a practicing Yeah, philosopher. she's been around for a while. Yeah, she's been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know very much about her. Just I read this book and it was, like, I think, an essay and then I just know a little bit. She came up in some art documents mm-hmm. from the kind of that, that perestroika, pre-perestroika time. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there were all these transdisciplinary meetings between thinkers and artists. And yeah. Very utopian sounding. But I think, she, you know, she was present at some of the meetings that, like, I'd seen a mentioned. But mm-hmm. so in her area was of the Soviet and the post-Soviet. Well, she did that for that book, but yeah. in general, I mean, she's like a Benjamin scholar. She oh, wrote, has written about uh, a book called Hegel and Haiti. She writes a lot about philosophy and stuff. Yeah. So th- this kind of took her to Russia. Yeah. Right. She's a sort it's of visual. Like aesthetics is, philosophy or kind of aesthetics yeah. comparative history, mm-hmm. which she takes. Um, in this book, she often takes kind of a Soviet made phenomenon or artifact. I feel like and then she sort of draws yeah. a parallel to the States. That's one of the things I feel like she does. Like what yeah. The capitalist alternate. And the similarities. Exactly. The kind the of the gesture kind of, of similarities between two projects, yeah. ideologies. But yeah, two, exactly two modernist projects. Yeah. Highlighting the, I think that's what's so interesting about it, the highlighting the similarities, because I think so often it's focused things. Oh yeah, discourse is focused on the differences and the yeah, yeah, not on on what's similar. I mean, I think that that kind of Cold War organization of thinking, I mean, we just see resonances of that all the time, that like Russia is, you know, is our opposite, is our enemy, everything that we've got right, they don't know what they're doing, they don't know what they're talking about, so backwards. So, I mean, I think we continue to see these assumptions that people are really shameless about throwing about, maybe not in front of you, because I know you're Belarusian, but (laughs) I think that what Buck Morse does is like, is not to critique that even on an empirical basis to say that you're being prejudiced or like this is that like she's like actually no from this other perspective like the the Soviet Union and the US were doing very similar things in the grand scheme of stuff so these big modernist projects where you were going to sort of achieve some kind of technological mastery over nature you're going to bring everyone up to a certain like level of civilization in terms of like literacy rates and like people in like standard of living etc and that if you really look I mean, that these projects had a lot in common. And so, like, the obsession with, like, space, technological yeah. progress and is very similar. Also, yeah. yeah, and of course that That's drove on the other. But one of the things that she points out in this book that all, that I found really interesting um, the first time I read it was the fact that the Soviet Union was, and we don't, I mean, I think as Americans, you're probably not going to be, like, blown away by this observation, but I think as, as Americans, like, we don't think about this, but like, was its own way a democratic project? In some ways, you could sure. say like more democratic than an mm-hmm. American system where like I don't know, our presidents are voted for by like the electoral college or whatever, because it was like another version of like a government for the people, which historically yeah. was like somewhat of a newish innovation, right? Only a couple yeah. hundred years. But anyway, Buck Morris is like contrary to this normal like thinking of these, you know, this sort of binary thinking that like the US is this and the Soviet Union or Russia is like the opposite or whatever. She's like these places were doing these, these different versions of some very kind mm. of similar projects, even guided by similar kind of ideologies or ideas about people, about hierarchies, about relationship to nature and stuff. And that was so interesting to me. And so I 
did this project, not to get too sidetracked, about... So in 1939 in the U.S., there was a uh, World's Fair held in Flushing Meadows Park yeah. in Queens, New York, right? There was another one in like 64, 65, but the first one in, in New York was in 1939. The same year that there was an all-union, so international in kind of a sense, but mm-hmm. um, agricultural exhibit in, in Moscow mm. in 1939, mm. um, where there were pavilions, of course, from all the different uh, republics. And in the both of these... Is that what it mm-hmm. is? It's that big Moscow park? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh? Yes, yeah, exactly, so exactly. It's a great exhibition. Um, Lots of cultural fun things about the we'll post some pictures to Instagram yeah yeah so I was like doing research on I mean of course just the fact that both of these superpowers had their own version of this yeah. world's fair public right. exhibition where people traveled from the countryside was this sort of like nationalistic yeah. kind of project right it is very much to connect yeah. people of course in the US it's very sort of merchandised too I mean there's still so much detritus from the world's fairs that I mean I love to look at the stuff on eBay or whatever that's floating around because so much was produced because there were so many tourists buying souvenirs and um but so there was these events happening in the same year in these different places that um and of course then the new york world's fair they have these pavilions of countries representing their sort of like national mm-hmm. projects or whatever with all their little like folk costumes and food and whatever so it was also kind of like educating socializing the u.s on like what it, other countries meant and how they were sort of positioned vis-a-vis yeah. the, the united states um with these kind of stereotypical right. representations which was it's also happening it is. <laughs> i know it was. Yeah, a very different relationship like between a visual culture, right? Yeah, 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 very, very kind of direct and explanatory. Things are much more uh-huh. gestured at. I think, as we spoke before, you know, sardonic advertising uh-huh. is more likely than this kind of straightforward presentation. Yeah, now you have to interpret everything Wink. yourself yeah, or like decide yourself. what level of irony you're going to perceive. It will be non-committal, exactly. Yeah. It will be because no one wants to be interpreted in a hor- kind of <laughs> way they don't want to be. Okay, so you have these these kind of parallel happenings or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, I was interested in thinking about these projects as both these kind of modern projects this sort of public performance of like that's meant to build nationality and the national idea of a country that yeah. exists in sort of a discrete formation with other discrete countries but what was interesting was that this moment in history in the US this is like like coming after the Great Depression right mm-hmm. it's like there was a really big like communist movement like people a lot of, yeah. a lot of support for the communist yeah. idea and this was before like the horrors of Stalinism were well known and so there was a lot of people in the U.S., especially with a real lows that the Great Depression saw, people, you know, which we see parallels yeah. of today, of course, where people are like aware of what's happening in the Soviet Union. They're like, okay, wait, there's a worker state like with free healthcare and education, yeah. you know, where workers not only have certain whatever economic rights, but they are like held in esteem, like they yeah. are in control of everything. Sounds so, you know, me. this had a lot, Even it was really kind of captured crazy. and you kind of understand like why the McCarthyism of was course. so important and stuff because, yeah. because it wasn't like, I think by the eighties or whatever, like when I hear about the Cold War, it's like the Soviet Union were already like the losers or whatever. But I think there yeah. was a time when then people were more kind of like, well, yeah, wow, we could do this. It was a huge threat. And it does to have the elites. publicity, yeah. So, but because the Soviet Union presented this very tempting alternative yeah. that hadn't been sort of debunked by Stalinism or whatever, you know, at this point in the sort of pre-Cold War, I guess, but yeah. like leading up to the Cold War. Anyway, sorry. So in the presentation at the World's Fair of government and about industry and stuff, 
they were using a lot of this language that to us now sounds socialist because these ideas were kind of in, in mm, currency. In the air. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember there was like one exhibition that was showing the whole process of like farmers, like well, milking cows, yeah. the production line, the factory up to the stores. So in a way sort of the trying to... The Great New Deal had a lot of socialist language. Yeah, of it, course, of course. So I think it's right. very much kind of in there. It was, yeah. yeah. And that, that this was something that, you know, by the 80s, by like Reagan or whatever, was right. like, if yeah, you want social like, rights, like, fuck you. Like, you know, but yeah. at this time it was, it was yeah. like a stronger kind of like, yeah, workers movement. And also the language of the displays were about like the city and the countryside being integrated and very much the sort of peasant worker stuff. Meanwhile, in the Soviet Union, like in the all-union agricultural exhibit, there's all this, there's talk about, about democracy and, and that saying the Soviet Union was a democracy and that it was like, you know, presenting its own, like, so this is for the people, this is what the people want, this is mm-hmm. in the interest of the people, which I think that because in the U.S. we hear, we just like, you know, whatever, they hate freedom and like they think a few people should be empowered, you know, we never got the narrative that, yeah. which was really similar to the U.S. Um, kind of project. Anyway, so this book was like really sort of paradigm shifting for me and it was fun mm-hmm. for me to kind of like look at these world's fairs like with this kind of framework that she yeah. gives us. But I think this framework is would be... Still really useful. Yeah, yeah. right. So... Um, and it's good to remember about it. I think it's just one of those... We, we are kind of living in an eternal present moment, mm-hmm. I think partly because of the news cycle, but, you know, it just seems to be hard to look backwards. Yeah, I mean, I just feel like half the stuff is, like, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians have fake news interfered with the election. (laughs) It's like, uh, (laughs) this is just reflecting our own corruption back to us. Do you know what I mean? Totally. Gosh. Well, I'm glad we solved that problem. Yeah, well. (laughs) I think we pretty much just ended the second cold war. What do you think? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Prevented the third, I hope. Hopefully everyone's listening, got the memo. (laughs) All the 30 people. No more russophobia, please. That was a great excursion into the 20th century, I think. Yeah. Um, I do wonder how we got there from Fleabag. <laughs> from Fleabag to the 20th century. I mean, the, the 20th, 20th century wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that long ago, yeah. But already 21st century had been around for a while, however. I mean, There's I was no born young, in the 20th thing. century. I don't know about you. Shh. <laughs> no one heard. No. You're a zoom. I know you're a zoomer. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm a, I'm I saw a, you zooming around the house. <laughs> <laughs> what am I? Please, if anybody knows, do tell. Can't figure it out. I guess this is the end of the podcast. Even though I wish it oh, wasn't. Sad. I know. Maybe we should talk about something else. I think it'll be too long. <laughs> well, thank you for stopping by, Emily. Oh yeah, it's been a real pleasure to be here. I can't believe how professional we sound. It was a, no. <laughs> but we're yeah, just we're professional, professional broads, I think. Um, we're yeah. Just, yeah, trying to be professional. Yeah. Well, I'll be back next week again and Emily will be back. I'll just be listening from afar on my laptop. <laughs> I'll listen on your phone. But it will be like having, I'll pretend that you're I'll in the room with me. I'll press yeah. a vinyl record in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> over. Not really. Well, you'll hear from us next week. Jenny will be back. And I just want to say it's been a pleasure share, literally sharing the microphone with you. <laughs> oh, yes, we are sharing a microphone. Also sharing a table. We have two cups of tea. And we have lots of great books. Like, Soviet-themed yeah. books on the table, all out. Okay, yeah. until next year in Minsk. <laughs> Bye. Bye.